Hi, everybody, and welcome back to the Living with Power Hope podcast. This is Lena Abujamra. I'm your host, and this is a place where we share everything related to God, culture, and faith. We love God's word, and I hope that you have, uh, if you've been here before, I hope you found this podcast to be helpful. And if you're new, welcome. We love having new people. Listen, big holiday season. We're excited to be sharing it with you. Happy Thanksgiving. Merry Christmas. We just love you. We love that you've checked in with us. Uh, we, we drop new uh, content every Thursday on the uh, podcast. And this week, we're going to read you another chapter. This is incredible. We've never shared the second chapter of the book for free. And we're going to read it today. Actually, I'm going to read it. It's part of the Audible. We got access to that uh, material. And we're going to be sharing chapter two. So if you listened last week, uh, we read introduction and chapter one. You can go back and listen to those. And today, we're going to share chapter two. And I'm telling you, you're going to be salivating after that. You're going to want to get the rest of it. Uh, the beginning is good, but the middle is awesome. And the ending is even better. So I can say that because I know the story. It is my story. It is a form of memoir on uh, my life and struggles, specifically as it pertains to sexuality. So uh, go ahead and listen. Don't be shy. Uh, I'm a doctor. I've seen it all before. Uh, but let me read you a couple of uh, comments that people have left about this book. Nancy Guthrie, a friend of mine who um, is an author and the host of Help Me Teach the Bible. Uh, she's part of the Gospel Coalition. She said, I picked up Lena's book and couldn't put it down until I finished it. So grateful for your honesty and mostly for the grace of Jesus for sexual sinners, which is all of us. Amen to that. My friend Dorothy Little Greco, author of Marriage in the Middle, said, this is one of the most honest, refreshing books on sexuality from a Christian perspective that I've ever read. This is the kind of conversation we need to be having today. To thank you, Dorothy. I really appreciate this. Guys, you can find the book on Amazon, but for today, you can dig into chapter two. Just listen up, whatever you're doing. Lean in. Don't run it at double speed. That's a danger at my rate of speech, but uh, enjoy it, and I hope it will encourage you. So here we go. Control. I'm so excited, and I just can't hide it. I'm about to lose control, and I think I like it. The Pointer Sisters. This might be a good place for me to pause and give you some definitions. What exactly do I mean when I use the word sex, lust, sin, or even porn? Words can be confusing to say the least. So let me tell you what I mean when I use those surprisingly controversial words. God created penises and vaginas. Even after four years in medical school and 25 years of medical practice, I find Genesis 2 still the best place to learn basic anatomy. While there are no schematics in Genesis, the image is clear. First, God created man and named him Adam. Then God created Eve. God created them both male and female, Adam and Eve, penises and vaginas. Adam knew his wife Eve and they had Cain, or Adam had sex with Eve and they had a baby. When God first talks about sex in the Bible, he refers to the intimate experience between a male and a female bound together through marriage. Marriage was God's idea from the start. The next step was for the newlyweds to go home and have sex and a lot of children. We've come a long way since then, baby. Most of us use the term sex much more loosely these days. We use the term to refer to a wide variety of activities meant to lead to arousal and orgasm. Today, whether you agree with these practices or not, sex can be between a man and a woman outside of the context of marriage. The Bible calls that fornication if you're single and adultery if you're married. Sex can be an act between two men or two women. The Bible calls that homosexuality. Or it can mean sex between two members of the same family. The Bible calls that incest. Or it can mean sex between a human and an animal. That's bestiality. Or it can mean forcing sex on someone. The Bible calls that rape. Or it can mean multiple people having sex together. Biblically speaking, that's an orgy. Or there's sex that can be paid for. That's prostitution. 
Or sex can mean stimulating oneself to orgasm. Oh yeah, that's masturbation. The M word is never used in the Bible, but we created a word for it anyway because we're, well, sexually savvy that way. If you lump all those sex acts together, except for sex between a husband and wife, you have what God calls sexual sin or sexual immorality. Whenever I use the words sexual struggle or sexual immorality in this book, I'm adopting his view too. If you're not a Bible-believing Christian, this is where you might be tempted to stop reading the book and ask for your money back. I can understand your frustration. I should have warned you from the start that this book is written with a biblical perspective for followers of Jesus, although I did think that my mentioning the fact that I'm a 50-year-old virgin would have given that up. But hold up a second. Maybe it's wishful thinking on my part, but I'd love for you to stick around a little bit longer. I have a feeling that we have a lot more in common than you think. Anyway, what about lust? What exactly is lust? The dictionary defines lust as an intense and unrestrained sexual craving or an overwhelming desire or craving. The Bible always uses the term lust with a negative connotation to reflect sinful longing. I like to think of lust as wanting something at the wrong time and in the wrong amount. Furthermore, lust doesn't always relate just to sex. You can lust after stuff too, like cars and houses. I have spent hours scrolling through Instagram lusting after other people's kitchens and gardens. The tricky part about lust is that it's not an action. It's more like an idea, a thought. But it's even more nuanced. Because even if you're one of those Christians who says they follow Jesus, but doesn't particularly like the Bible, you've got to figure out what to do with what Jesus said about lust in Matthew 5, 27 and 28. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you, that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. I guess none of us is that innocent after all now, are we? Then there's porn. What exactly is porn? Well, to start with, it's bad. The word porn comes from the Greek word pornia, used 26 times in the New Testament. The word pornia is a generic term for sexual sin, including sexual immorality, fornication, marital unfaithfulness, prostitution, and adultery. That's a whole lot of troublesome stuff packed into one word. Porn is short for pornography and is the depiction of erotic behavior intended to cause sexual excitement. It is usually conveyed through materials such as books, photos, or videos in a way that arouses humans quickly. Supreme Court Justice Potter Seward summed it up well in 1964. He said about pornography, I know it when I see it. According to Barna, most of us not only know it when we see it, but have also seen it at one point or another too. Are you still tracking? I can summarize it all like this. According to God's word, the Bible, the only sexual relationship God blesses is between one man and one woman in the context of marriage. Everything else is sexual sin. Pornography is just one form of sexual sin that is really, really bad. What's ironic is that most Bible-believing Christ followers say they hold to this orthodox biblical worldview and completely agree with my definitions so far, yet are still, according to statistics, living a lie. We have a puzzling paradox. We morally reject sexual immorality, but still regularly participate in sexual sin in one form or another. Maybe not all the time, but enough to wonder, why do we do what we don't want to do? And why do we want to so badly? If we didn't want to so much, maybe we would stop. I haven't done a poll yet, but in the scientific way of most ER doctors, i.e. my gut instinct, 
I would venture to guess that there isn't a Christian leader whose life has imploded by sex scandal who didn't at one point tell themselves, I can stop this anytime. I've told myself the very same thing in a million different ways. I can stop anytime. I've got this. There's nothing to worry about here. I don't have a problem. I can control how far this goes. Guess how successful I've been at holding that. Yeah, right. I practice my porn through reading. Too soon to fess up? Well, the cat's out of the bag now. I suppose you can say that I'm a respectable sinner. None of that computer screen nonsense for the most part. My pattern of sin is typical for women. Don't believe me? Consider two words. Colleen Hoover. I just checked the Amazon bestseller list and can confirm that there are not one, two, or even three Colleen Hoover all-around bestselling books, but five in the top 25. That's a lot of people reading a lot of steamy romance novels. Hoover admits she writes at least one erotic sex scene in each of her books. I started off reading pretty vanilla love stories. It was a good way to kill time. I used to scour the Reader's Digest G-rated love stories back in the 80s. It didn't take me long to move to steamier novels. I didn't think I had a problem back then. It was just innocent reading. I mean, who didn't love a kid who checks out books at the library? I had things under control. I'd grow out of the habit soon, especially when life got busier in college. While school did eventually occupy my time, summers off were the perfect time to unwind and pick up old habits. For someone who studied all the time, finding an escape in fiction was a gift I cherished. I noticed that I started pushing the envelope on sexual reading content with time. What used to satisfy me didn't anymore. I remained under the illusion that I was master of my impulses. In time, I got used to juggling my sin habit with my Christian responsibilities quite successfully, I might add. I was still convinced I could kick the habit anytime I wanted to. It was just a matter of deciding when I needed to. My plan was always that I'd get married and start living a real love life instead of a fictional one. I think we can agree by now that that was wishful thinking. Three decades later, not only were things spiraling out of control, but I was wading in waters with riptides threatening to pull me under. I wish I could do what others have done and shake off what I know to be true. I would tell myself to stop denying myself, be free, express myself, run like a cheetah in the wild and be who I was meant to be. But where does it stop? When are one's impulses finally expected to be controlled? Is there ever a line in the sand where we must indeed finally deny ourselves? And says who? What if what looks like self-denial to you is different than what it means to me? Who gets to decide where the line in the sand is drawn? Is it finally bad when one moves from a book to a screen? And how much porn on a screen is bad? Does a minute matter, or is it bad only if you spend more than five minutes on a website? Are images as bad as videos? Are sexual images between a man and a woman more acceptable than images between two men or two women? What about age groups? Is it more acceptable the day after someone's 18th birthday? And is porn bad when it's on a porn site, but more acceptable if it's built into the storyline of a movie? Where do you draw the line? When does control overrule the great spirit of sexual freedom we've been told we deserve? We talk about control, but what control? The moment you allow lust a toehold into your mind is like letting a mouse into your house. Before you know it, an entire population of mice is squatting in your attic. It's impossible to get rid of them without a miracle. We naively think we're the exception to the rule. We figure that even though everyone else has absolutely no control over their lust, somehow we do. If it were that easy to just say no to sexual sin, most pastors who have blown up their lives and ministries due to a sex scandal would have stopped before their demise. If it were that easy to just say no, I would have done it back in my Reader's Digest days. 
If it were that easy to simply turn off our sexual impulses and just say no to sexual sin, we wouldn't be hearing about 68% of church-going men and 50% of pastors who regularly view porn, or the 76% of Christians aged 18 to 24 who actively and regularly spend time searching porn sites, or the only 13% of self-identified Christian women who say they never watch porn which leaves 87% of Christian women who have at some point watched porn. What usually starts out as a small and innocent sin can quickly morph into a cascade of more shocking sins than we ever dreamed we would commit. How easily we lose control. Ironically, in every other area of our lives, we tend to be control freaks. I've seen over 150,000 patients in the last seven years as a telehealth provider. I know because we keep track of every measurable detail in telehealth. And here's what I've learned from my vast experience with people. Humans are indeed control freaks. We try to control almost every single situation in life. Some of us try to control outcomes by using anger and threats. For example, my patients will warn me that if I don't give them what they want, they'll report me to someone. Others of us use kindness to control the outcomes in our lives. We think if we smile enough and say thank you enough, the person on the other side of the counter will do what we want. Still, others of us use emotions like humor or tears to control situations. No matter the strategy we use when all is said and done, most of us are control freaks except when it comes to the things that we ought to control, like our anger or our spending or our eating or, as I've come to learn, my lust. When it comes to stopping certain sinful sexual patterns in my life, I get a big fat F. Why is that? Why can't I stop doing what I know as a follower of Jesus that I shouldn't be doing? I've been told that I have an addictive personality. Is that why it seems impossible to control my sexual impulses? While my sexual impulses don't seem to have harmed anyone else in life so far but me, try telling that to the victim of rape or abuse, or even to the wife of the pastor who has just been told that her husband has been having a six-month-long affair with someone else. I don't buy it. I can't give in to the notion of pinning sexual mishaps on addiction. It just feels lazy and dishonest. Why then are so many of us unable to control what we so naively thought we could? Whether it's the porn addict who promises his wife that he can stop anytime, or the woman who swears she'll never have another one-night stand, or the Christian couple planning to marry but still single and vowing never to go that far again, we seem powerless in the areas of our lives where we need to be. It's exhausting to say the least. Here's a thought. What if we fail in controlling our sexual sin not because we can't control it, but because we like it? What if the reason we keep going back to the place that we hate and do the things we abhor is that deep down, doing what we hate makes us feel better about what our deeper problem is? Perhaps our sexual sin is really the lesser of two evils. That's something worth stopping and thinking about. There's one more thing to consider when it comes to why we have a hard time controlling our sexual sin and our lust. What if we're just going about it all wrong? Have you ever wondered why people like Joseph, the guy with the amazing Technicolor dream coat, did have the ability to control his lust and run from the vixen wife of Potiphar, while David, God's chosen man, succumbed to his lust like a feeble old woman? What did Joseph have that David didn't? And why is it still so much easier to connect with David on this? Have you ever bought anything at Ikea? God help us, so have I. The story's always the same. We go to the store and walk around until we spot the piece of furniture we want. We make our way to the stockroom and finally overcome the challenge of putting the box in the back of our car. You know exactly what's coming. After opening the box and setting out all the pieces on the floor, we start building that wretched table. 
We muddle our way through the first few steps, hoping we don't lose our religion in the process. And then it happens. The problem of the missing piece. No matter how hard we try to put that piece of furniture together and make it work, there is always a missing piece. Trying to control my own sexual impulses has long felt like an IKEA project. No matter how hard I try to control my own lust, it's like there's always a missing piece. Lately, I've been thinking, what if that's the problem? What if all of us Christians still struggling with lust are trying to control our problem while missing the missing piece? My whole life, I've acted as if the missing piece has been my ability to say no to sin strongly and decisively enough. My whole life, I've assumed that the missing piece is my own willpower over my flesh. But what if that's not the missing piece at all? What if the missing piece is Jesus? Remember when we were in junior high and we felt like it was our duty to shelter our parents from R-rated movies? The minute they walked into the room and caught us watching something racy, we quickly changed the channel. We didn't think they could handle that stuff. Or maybe it was our own guilt in action. I catch myself doing the same thing with Jesus. Maybe it's time to invite him into the stadium to help me fight my battles instead of acting like he doesn't even know what sex is or is as uncomfortable with it as I am. What if Jesus is the missing piece in our struggle for control? Instead of trying so hard to say no to our sin, what if instead we focused on saying yes to Jesus? And there it is, chapter two of Don't Tell Anyone You're Reading This, A Christian Doctor's Thoughts on Sex, Shame, and Other Troublesome Issues. You can find this on Amazon and really all of the book sources. It's in Audible, it's in Kindle, and it's a hardback. Um, you can also uh, check out drlinabook.com where we have tons of content that you'll find uh, fun, interesting, a book club guide, which is awesome. And many people have used it. We hope that you use it. There's also a place you can tell your story as you feel more confident in sharing what God has done in your life. We'd love for you to share it with your name or anonymously. Really no pressure, it doesn't have to be posted. We just love to rejoice with you over what God's doing in your life. We're so glad you checked in today. If you wanna find out more about this ministry, check out livingwithbower.org. We're here every Thursday. If you haven't subscribed to this podcast, do it now, what are you waiting for? And hey, have a happy Thanksgiving and Merry Christmas, and I'll see you again next week.